I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you know the origin of that song? It's also known as No Turning Back. Is truly inspiring. It's also a frightening story. In the 1880s, there was a Welsh missionary who, after enduring severe persecution in India, finally saw his first converts in a particularly brutal village there in the province of Assam. It was a husband and wife with their two children who professed faith in Christ and were baptized. And as a result, the village leaders, who were vehemently opposed to the gospel, decided to make an example out of the husband. So they arrested the entire family and then demanded in front of the whole village that the father renounce Christ or see his wife and children murdered. When he refused, his two children were executed in front of him. And then given another chance to recant his faith, the man again refused and his wife was killed as well. And after that, still refusing to reject his newfound faith in Christ, the man was executed. The people who were there in the village when all of this happened later told the entire story to the Welsh missionary. And they told him that when the man was asked to recant or see his children murdered, he simply said, I've decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. And after seeing his children killed and offered another opportunity to recant his faith in Christ, the witness in the village told the missionary that the man then said, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And then finally, after seeing his wife killed, the villagers recalled the man saying in his final breath, though no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. And then he was killed for his faith. In the weeks and months and years after, the story became so well known all throughout India that an Indian evangelist named Sadhu Singh put the words to music for the first time. And yet as amazing as all of that is, what followed was even more astounding because the chief of the village and the others who killed these Christians were so deeply affected by the devotion to Christ that this family showed even when facing death that the chief and the other village leaders gave their own lives to Christ and as a result revival broke out at first in the village but then eventually spreading throughout the entire region. And families there for generations to this day in fact have been following Jesus Christ ever since. All because one man who led his family to Christ, made a decision to follow Jesus no matter the cost, and it was an awfully high price to pay. But he willingly paid it, because no matter how much he loved his family and himself, he loved Jesus even more. In Luke 14, when Jesus said, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. For people throughout history, including many today around the world, that, that isn't simply a metaphor for how they express their faith. No, for many it's a literal code by which they live and die. As you know, people have been losing their lives for centuries for the sake of the gospel of Christ, and that's still happening today, particularly in other parts of the world, and will continue to, of course, until Jesus returns at the end of this age. Right? People who have made a decision to follow after Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. As we continue working our way through the book of Revelation this morning, I'd like for us to reflect on that statement. I have decided to follow Jesus and maybe ask ourselves, how deep within myself does that statement ring true? Is it a surface commitment that I would readily hide or even recant at the first sign of embarrassment or public scorn? 
Is it something that I run from the moment I become uncomfortable in conversation with those who may not believe what I do? Is it a statement that I'm willing to conceal any time it may offend the sensibilities of uh, the unbelievers around me? And what about the possibility of finding myself on my knees before those who are hostile to the gospel, as so many of our brothers and sisters around the world have been just in recent history, believers who were told to either recant their faith or be killed? The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary estimates that there have been over 70 million Christians martyred in history, with over half of those in the 20th century alone. And in the 21st century, they estimate that on average, over the 10-year period between the year 2000 and 2010, there were approximately 100,000 Christians killed each year. That's one million Christians killed for their faith in just 10 years. It's not unreasonable to ask ourselves, if my life was being threatened because of my faith in Christ, would I remain true to the gospel in that moment, or would I fold under the pressure? And even deeper still, if my loved ones, my own family were to be killed in front of me, if I refused to denounce my faith in Christ, would I readily walk away from my stand for the gospel, or would I stand firm and simply say, I've decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. Oh, that we would have that kind of courage, that kind of determined resolve, that depth of trust in the God we serve to stand for his name, even if it means dying for it. And of course we can. And as we'll see in our story today, as the end of this age draws near, we must. Because being a Christian in mainstream, uh, mainstream society, probably isn't going to get easier. According to what John is telling us, every day we live on this earth is one day closer to the fulfillment of the prophecies and visions in this book where Christians are increasingly persecuted and even martyred for their faith, which again is nothing new in many parts of the world today. But, but what about here? What happens when that level of persecution shows up on your doorstep? So look, if the end is near, as John sees it in his vision, are those words, I have decided to follow Jesus, is that just a song title or will they become your declaration, a stand that you decide to take no matter what? Because look, your commitment to Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his gospel cannot be dependent upon the level of comfort or discomfort that you may experience in the sharing of it, right? The boldness of your testimony to the gospel cannot be governed by fear or ridicule or harm or loss if you decide to share it. It cannot be contingent upon how you think you're being perceived by others because following Jesus Christ is an all or nothing proposition. There just isn't any middle ground. There's no room in his great commission to us for an easy gospel that never causes us any hardship in life. Taking up our cross daily and following him as Jesus commanded us to do in Luke 9, 23 will always mean some challenging days because of it. Satisfying and rewarding days, yes, but often very challenging and sometimes very difficult. And yet too many in our modern Christian culture have allowed compromise to replace conviction, comfort to replace risk and personal prosperity to replace a life of service and sacrifice. And so I offer this question for each of us to ponder today when we say or sing those words, I have decided to follow Jesus. How deep does that decision actually reside within you? Because once you've truly made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, 
If you're really going to follow him, there is no turning back. At least not if you're going to fulfill the purpose for which you were created and called to in this life, to make disciples and reach the lost. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see where this world is headed, according to John, and what we're supposed to do about it. Revelation 10, we'll start with the first seven verses. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. It swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So uh, there, uh, there are three different sevenfold visions in Revelation. We've already watched as the seven seals were opened in chapters six and seven. We're now hearing the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. And then in chapter 16, we find the seven bowls. And as we come to this 10th chapter, we find a pattern emerging as all of these judgments are laid out in divisions of four, followed by three. So, for instance, there were four seals open, followed by three with a definite distinction between the first four and the last three. We find that to be the case with these trumpets, and also we will with the bowls that are to follow. The last three are always separated from the first four. And in each case, there's an interlude between the sixth and seventh judgments. And so between the sixth and seventh seals, there was an interlude in chapter seven. Between the sixth and seventh bowls, uh, there's an interlude in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 16. And here between the sixth and seventh trumpets, uh, trumpet judgments, there's an interlude that spans from chapter 10, where we are today, all the way through roughly the first half uh, of chapter 11, about verse 14. And these interludes consist of two visions each. With the seals, the interlude was the sealing of the 144,000. You'll remember if you were here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And the heavenly multitude in chapter 7, uh, verses 9 through 17. And with the close of chapter 9, six of the seven trumpets have now sounded. And so once again, here in chapter 10, we encounter an interlude of two related visions. The angel with the little scroll, as we just read and the two witnesses, which we find in the next chapter. And in each case, the interlude comes before the final judgment, whether the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or the seventh bowl, with the intention of encouraging and comforting God's people in the midst of the increasing intensity of God's judgment, which gets harsher and harsher as you go through all of the judgments. In the, in the words of uh, John MacArthur, he says, it's a gasp for breath in which God can comfort his people. These interludes are to remind God's people that God is still sovereign. His people are still remembered and will be ultimately victorious. And so before the seventh trumpet is blown, we come to this interlude, which is chapter 10, not only to encourage God's people when these events happen in the future, but also for John to get a grip on what was being revealed to him back then, but also for us to get a grip on what these visions mean for us now. And so John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. 
Now, some people, because of the similarities, have suggested that this angel is Jesus himself. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case based on the original language, though. When John says that he saw another mighty angel, the word another is alos. In the original Greek, it means another of exactly the same kind as the rest of the angels, or another identical angel. Listen, if this was Jesus himself, John wouldn't have described him as being like the other angels. More, more likely, John would have used the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. Right? There, there are about a half a dozen other really good reasons for not, this not being Jesus. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of those now. The point is, although this angel shares similarities with the glorified Christ from Revelation 1, and likely serves in close proximity to Jesus. John identifies this as being an angel, not the Christ. Uh, some believe it was Gabriel. Others believe it was the archangel Michael. Could be whoever it was. This angel is massive in size as he places his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and raises his right hand to heaven, which is deeply significant. Because up to this point in history and just beyond it, Satan has been referred to by John as a great red dragon standing on the seashore, on the sand of the sea, says in Revelation 12, 17, whose beast comes rising out of the sea in Revelation 13, 1. Uh, he's referred to by Jesus as the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. And he's referred to by the Apostle Paul as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. But now... This massive, powerful, terrifying angel of the Lord with the thundering voice like a roaring lion puts one foot on the sea, the other on the land, and lifts his hand toward heaven. You understand, this is God saying to the enemy, enough is enough. Every realm over which you have had influence, I'm taking back. The land, the sea, and the air are mine. It's an overwhelming display of the sovereign authority of the power of God alone over all of creation. And he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So as John prepares to write down what he hears, he's prevented by a voice from heaven, And just as Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, speaks of a man being caught up in heaven and hearing inexpressible things that a person is not permitted to tell, John is told to seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And sure enough, the contents of this particular scroll are nowhere uh, revealed in Revelation. Of course, there's much speculation, as you can imagine. We know from verse 7 that the contents of the scroll will be fulfilled when the seventh trumpet sounds and God unites all things in heaven and earth under Christ's headship. But we still don't know the specific contents of the scroll, what it says. Some say it includes a description in detail of the full establishment of God's kingdom, while others say this mystery must be the expression of God's unrestrained wrath that is to come, signified in the bold judgments toward all who resist his reign. Well, the truth is we don't know. And in my estimation, if God says to keep it a mystery, then we don't want to know. For good reason. Then John says, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. In the Old Testament, the lifting of the hand was part of taking an oath. 
In fact, Abram uh, de- declined the spoils of battle, saying, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, Genesis 14, and 23. In the song of Moses, God himself lifts up his hand to heaven in the solemn oath to carry out vengeance on his adversaries in Deuteronomy 32:40, So this angel raises his right hand and swears an oath by God that there will be no more delay In other words, the seventh trumpet is about to sound. The curtain is about to close. The end is near. Time is short. We don't really have time to be complacent about our faith. Yet the Americanized version of the gospel that most of us grew up in, otherwise known as cultural Christianity, has run its course and proven unequivocally to be inadequate for transforming anyone. Because listen, the gospel is subversive. It is disruptive. It threatens your entire way of living by forcing you to confront the reality that you cannot follow Christ and this world at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You have to choose Jesus or the world, it's one or the other, which is why the church, the true church, is full of changed people. People who are decidedly not the same as they were before Christ. Because once you make the decision to follow Christ, everything in your life is going to change. If you're gonna truly follow him, it has to. At least according to Jesus, it has to. Which is quite different than what many of us have been raised to believe because according to cultural Christianity, there's no real need to change in order to follow him. You you can come as you are and stay as you are. You can live however you want to live. You can cling to this culture as tightly as you like. As long as you believe in Jesus, then you're a follower. Except that's not what he said. Near the height of his popularity, Jesus could hardly go anywhere without being accompanied by massive crowds of people. And of course, he often used those opportunities to perform some truly amazing miracles, both for individuals and sometimes on a large scale for crowds of people as a whole. Why? Because he loved them. He healed people. He delivered people from all kinds of oppression. He gave people dignity. He fed them and cared for them. And of course, he always taught them the truth about God and the kingdom of heaven. And then often he invited them to become his followers. And that tends to be the way we characterize Jesus' ministry on earth. I think that's how most people today, certainly most professing Christians, would probably describe his interaction with uh, other people then, which is not wrong. It's just incomplete because there's a significant amount of Scripture in the Gospels that describes Jesus turning people away. My whole life, I've heard, I've heard pastors and Christians say Jesus never turned anyone away. That's not true. That's not true. But we don't talk about those stories because they don't really fit very well with the description of the Jesus that we want to follow today. I mean, everybody wants the Jesus that healed people. We all want the Jesus that set people free. Of course we do. Everyone can agree on the Jesus that accepted people who were otherwise rejected by society. The Jesus who was a friend to sinners and outcasts. And without a doubt, those are all fitting descriptions of the Jesus we profess to follow today. Absolutely. But listen, we aren't nearly as keen on the same Jesus who turned people away. The same Jesus who offended the majority of people who ever heard him speak. The same Jesus who demanded a litany of conditions from those who would ever dare 
to follow him. That's the Jesus we aren't nearly as apt to talk about, to tell others about, or to even ponder for ourselves too long, because that Jesus makes us uncomfortable. That Jesus is confrontational. That Jesus is demanding. That Jesus is downright offensive to most of the people who encounter him. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, tells this story in his gospel account. He says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Jesus is ready to leave the crowd of people behind. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, right before Jesus walks away from the crowd, a man says to him, hey Jesus, take me with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. To which Jesus replies, no, you won't. You won't. You like the idea of following me. You like the version of following me that you have in your head. But the reality of actually following me is nothing like you think it is. So don't fool yourself. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. (laughs) Matthew 8, 18 through 22. In other words, you want to follow me? Then someone else is going to have to go bury your father for you because following me has to take precedence over even your most important family obligations. How incredibly inconsiderate, Jesus. How offensive. Most people in the American church wouldn't stand for that today. Why was Jesus so uncompromising with these people? Because he knew it was in their hearts. He knew that their commitment was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. And the problem with that is time is running short. This age is drawing to a close. Jesus is coming back for his people, not people who know something about him, but people who actually know him. One of the second generation followers of Jesus and the traveling companion of the apostle Paul, Luke records this story about Jesus in his gospel account. I've shared this with you before. Ask my wife how long this week I've agonized over sharing this part of scripture with you this morning because I've done it before. And I just, I agonize over this. I hope you understand. When great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, this is Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The phrase to hate, by the way, was an ancient Hebrew idiom, a saying that meant to love less. So Jesus is saying to these people who are following him around, obviously he wants people to follow him, right? That's why he came. Yet he says, if you don't love me more than your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, in fact, if you don't love me more than you love yourself, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be. My disciple, to bear a Roman cross in the first century Mediterranean world was to suffer the most horrific death imaginable. So Jesus says, if you're not willing to die to your own dreams and your own ideas about how life should be and your own desires apart from me, if you're not willing to let go of your own comfort and security and prosperity, then listen to me. You cannot be my disciple. 
Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has. This is the cost of following Jesus. If you're not willing to risk everything, then you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25 through 33. In other words, if you're not willing to pay the price, it's not about works, you understand? It's about submission. Jesus says, if you're not willing to love me more than you love your family, more than you love yourself, in fact, if you're not willing to die to yourself, if you're not willing to renounce anything else in your life by putting me above everything else in your life, every single other relationship and desire and dream and aspiration that you have apart from me, then don't bother trying to follow me because you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, if I'm not everything to you, then you cannot be a good disciple or a committed disciple or my best disciple. No, he says, if I'm not the number one priority in your life, then you cannot be my disciple at all. In the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 6, after Jesus preaches a particularly difficult message about the commitment required to follow him, John says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, verse 66. They left and they didn't come back. Do you think Jesus was surprised by that? Do you think he was sorry that he said what he said that caused all of those professing followers of his to walk away and not come back? Was he sorry for saying it? Not at all. He also didn't go chasing after them. Why not? Because he knew exactly what they were going to do before he even opened his mouth. Because he knew what was in their hearts. And so knowing good and well that they would walk away from him when he told them the truth about himself, what did he do? He told them anyway. It's not that he didn't love them. In fact, the entire reason he was willing to speak the truth to them as hard as he knew it would be for them to hear was precisely because he loved them. So he knew as long as their hearts were set on other things than they were on him, more than they were on him, he knew their commitment to him would never last. And so as far as Jesus was concerned, they're far better off with the discomfort of having to wrestle with the truth than they were with the comfort of believing a lie. So he sent them away. He sent them away frustrated, angry, and offended because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that their commitment to him was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. So he sent them away because Jesus doesn't call us to follow him on our terms. He calls us to follow him on his terms. And following him on his terms will without exception profoundly disrupt your life. In fact, if you're going to follow him, then everything in your life has to change. And it's an undeniable change, a disruptive change that given enough time and influence will actually begin to reshape the lives of people around you. At least when you refuse to keep it to yourself, as we'll see as we finish this story for today. Author Craig Greenfield once said, 
Jesus is not respectable or nice in the sense of being placid or uncontroversial. He's not necessarily a good citizen. Jesus is wildly and prophetically subversive because beyond our affluent, comfortable suburbs, not all is right. and Something has to change. Let's read verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about what many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Uh, So John is told to take the little scroll from the angel and eat it. And that it would be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And indeed it was. Keep in mind, this scroll is unsealed. It's an open book, which means everything written in it is revealed to John. The fulfillment of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven judgments, it's all there. Everything that has yet to come to pass is all there. It's, of course, the blessings of God written within it for the believer, the promises for his people, every message of hope, liberty, salvation, every bit of goodness and mercy and grace and love recorded within its pages are sweet to the taste. But that's not all that's recorded in it. For along with the sweetness of blessing and hope comes the harsh reality, the bitterness of judgment for the unbeliever. The judgment that is yet to come, the harshest yet. And it turns John's stomach, which is exactly what God wants it to do because he wants John to understand the urgency of what is in store for this world at the end of this age. The sweetness in store for every believer, yes, but also the bitterness in store for those who reject Christ. And so he instructs John, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John, you have to tell them. Tell them the rest of the story. You have to warn them about what is coming. Share the sweetness of the blessings within it, yes, but don't withhold the bitter. Teach them the truth of my word, even if it makes them sick to their stomachs. Don't withhold what you've seen and heard here today, because the end is near. It's time to tell the world. And listen, this is where we really need to wake up. Because it's not just about what you say to other people, about what you believe. It's how your beliefs have actually changed the way you're living your life. You understand If your faith hasn't actually changed your life, then how is your testimony supposed to change anyone else's? That was good timing. (laughs) If your faith hasn't actually changed your life, then how is your testimony supposed to change anyone else's? Look, whether you realize it or not, how you live always has a greater effect on others than what you say. What you live, how you live, is always going to have a greater effect on others than what you say. People people may listen to what you say, they will do what you do. Because we don't make choices in a vacuum. No matter how independent of others you may think your life choices are, the fact is, wherever you're going, you're taking other people there with you. Whatever direction your life is going in right now, you are leading people there with you, whether you mean to or not. 
Because every significant decision you make affects someone else. We don't make decisions in a vacuum. And so if your life is on a destructive path, whether you realize it or not, you're dragging other people down that path behind you. People whose lives are tethered to yours and are being affected by the choices you think you're only making for yourself. That's one of the reasons it's so important that you not only believe in Jesus Christ, but that you're actually following him because like it or not, there are people following you. People you may not even be aware of. I'm telling you, if you're not actually following Jesus Christ in your life right now, there are other people who are also not following him because they're following you. And in case you're thinking, well, nobody should be following me, they should be following Jesus and leave me out of it. Well, the Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We are supposed to have other people following us as we follow Christ. In fact, there's a word for that. It's called discipleship. This is part of the weight, the responsibility of being a Christian that we try not to carry around anymore. The fact that your life and how you live it is not just about you, it's about all those who happen to be a part of your life, those who God put in your life so that you could lead them to Christ. But listen, you cannot lead anyone to a place you're not going. You can tell someone about your favorite restaurant and how good your favorite meal is, but if you say to them, follow me there, and then you drive somewhere else, they're not going to experience that great meal you just told them about. You can't tell someone about Jesus. I mean, you can. You can tell them about Jesus, but that's not the same thing as leading them to Jesus, right? You, you can't lead anyone to Jesus if you're not following Jesus. And listen, the curtain is closing we're living in a, a particular pivotal time in history, a time when there are people all around us, like never before in our lifetime, who are angry, afraid, fed up with what's happening in the world, and they don't just need people who are willing to tell them about Jesus. They really need people who are willing to lead them to Jesus. But you cannot lead anyone to Jesus if you're not following Jesus. And so look, if your profession of faith is strong, but your walk with Jesus isn't, then the people you have influence with will profess Christ and they'll follow something else, just like you. And yes, we're saved by God's grace through our faith, not by works, that's true. But faith without works is what? It's dead faith. The sign of a true believer is someone who actually walks with Jesus. This is why we, I think we have to be careful about how we raise our hands and recite prayers, uh, the repeat after me prayers, in church, that's not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. It, making that kind of response to the word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is good and needed and we do that here and we probably always will. But listen, when someone asks me how many people got saved in a church service, I'm a little reticent to tell them uh, how many people raised their hands. I'd rather wait a few weeks and see if anything's actually changed in their life. Because although works don't save us and they don't, but look, show me someone who's truly been saved and I'll show you someone whose life doesn't look the same as it did before. And so here's a good question to consider and I've posed it to you many times. If tomorrow you decided that you didn't believe in Jesus anymore, would your life look any different than it does today? Would the people you happen to be in relationship with notice an undeniable difference in the way you behave, the way you talk, what you talk about, the choices you make, the places you go, the things you do tomorrow without believing in Jesus compared to your life today while you say you do believe in Jesus? Would there be an undeniable difference 
Or would your life without faith tomorrow look exactly like it does with your faith today? Because listen, without Jesus, your life cannot look the same as life with Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no remission of sins. Without Jesus, there's no victory over death. Without Jesus, there's no salvation from the wrath of God. Without Jesus, there's no help for today. Without Jesus, there's no hope for tomorrow. Without Jesus, there's no light for this world. Without Jesus, there's no plan for your life. Without Jesus, there's no rest for your soul. Without Jesus, there's no peace in troubled times. Without Jesus, there's no purpose for humanity. Without Jesus, there's no eternal life. Without Jesus, we have nothing, are nothing, accomplish nothing, and become nothing. Without Jesus, we're lost forever there's no way your life can be the same without Christ as it is with Christ unless you're simply professing someone you're not actually following and remember whatever it is that you are following you're taking other people there with you Timothy Keller writes, Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. Okay, being a Christian in mainstream society probably isn't going to get easier. According to what John is telling us, at least every day we live on this earth is one day closer to the fulfillment of the prophecies and visions in this book where Christians are increasingly persecuted and even martyred for their faith which means telling other people about Jesus, sharing the gospel, not only by the words we use, but by the way we live from day to day. That's going to get harder. And I can just tell you, the cultural Christianity that most of us have grown up in isn't going to cut it in our culture very much longer. Now, the, the curtain is closing on the days when calling yourself a Christian and actually living like one costs you nothing in this country. In fact, the end may be nearer than you think. I believe the day is coming soon to our doorstep where making the decision to follow Jesus will mean there is no turning back. Let's pray.